Oh, good morning. It's good to be here this morning and to have the opportunity to, uh, to share the word with you this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you again to turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. And I've entitled this message, Working Out What God is Working Within, Part 2. Now let me explain that. If you were here Sunday before last, when I had the opportunity to preach on this very passage of Scripture, the following day, and as I was sitting down and reading my Bible and praying, God made it abundantly clear that we hadn't even scratched the surface yet. And as a consequence, this is why we're back. And matter of fact, I thought, oh my God, I'd love to have finished this and completed it more, uh, more akin to what you're revealing to me. And then two days later, Paul said, can you preach for me on the 12th? And so I have this opportunity to come to you again this morning and talk about this passage of Scripture that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, and in particular where he was exhorting to them in verse 12 to do this. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence always, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And if I had three points to make this morning, it would be this. There is a necessity of our effort in doing this, what Paul has recommended and admonished and exhorted for us to do. There is a... There is a uh, application of this effort, and then there is a goal that we have as a consequence of this effort. So we're talking, first of all, this morning about the necessity of the effort, and as I would reiterate to you, as I did two Sundays ago, that it's clear that this has nothing to do whatsoever with working for your salvation. That's heresy. There's nothing we can do. And I gave you the example that uh, a couple, a few months ago, that uh, in our small group, one of the ladies presented me a pamphlet from the Catholic Church that was entitled, It Takes More Than Faith. And in essence, they used this scripture to kind of prove their points, and though albeit that it was utterly incorrect. But they used this scripture to kind of say, you have to have more than faith. There's works. You have to do good works. That's the only way you're going to be saved. Not only do you have to have faith in Christ, but it takes good works. And that is not at all what the Apostle Paul is saying in the Scripture. He's talking about, basically, that there's an effort that we need to make to apply the salvation that God has given us through Jesus Christ. Nothing that you can do, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one could boast. No man or woman can boast that they have the faith, they conjured up the faith. It is the gift of God. Even the faith we have that applies the grace is God's gift to us. There's nothing we can do. 
But Paul is saying there's something that you need to do as a consequence of being saved by grace through faith. And that is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And as a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God has ordained, preordained, since we have faith in him, that there are good works that we should be doing in accordance with living out his will and working out his salvation in us. And that's what we're talking about. We want to reiterate that to us again this morning. And again, I would also remind you that in that very first chapter of, of, the, of the letter to Philippi, he said in verse 6, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's God who began the good work in you by the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit, and it is him who will bring it to completion and fulfillment in the day that we stand face to face with him and our bodies in this flesh are glorified and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit is made complete when we stand before him in that way. Now, I want to also just kind of bar back to uh, one of the slides we talked about last week, and it was this comment that was done by Eric Simpson, who is the pastor at Eagle Church in Indianapolis. And it talked about this, uh, this need for us to have a, uh, a, a, an intentional effort to make. And he made this quote, We don't drift into knowing God deeply. It takes intentionality and effort. It takes effort. Now, the analogy we used last well, the Sunday when we preached on this was that it's like putting a canoe in the water. And Eric is a canoeist, so he was talking with some authority. And he says, you don't go anywhere until you put your paddle in the water. You have to get in the canoe, and then you put the paddles or the oars in the water. And unless you do... You can push away from shore, but all you're going to do is drift. Or, maybe if there's not a current, you'll just kind of sit there. You're not going to go anywhere whatsoever. The analogy is meant to be this, that it requires an effort on our behalf, putting our oars in the water and heading off in the direction which God has assigned for us, creating us for good works beforehand that we would walk in them. So, therefore, God is expecting us to make an effort and I would also kind of just give you the, the reiteration of what Christ said to his disciples in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If any man would come after me, let him first deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him deny himself. There's some effort involved in that, by the way. And take up his cross. You don't think there's some effort involved? In taking up your cross, there is. There's some effort here. But an act of our will, it's not that he, we do it without his power. He gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to take up the cross, to deny ourselves, and then to follow him. But there's some action required. And we also use several other verses of Scripture where he said, Come unto me, you who are heavy, uh, burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me and take my yoke upon you. And I will give you, uh, I will give you rest for your souls. Let's talk again a little bit more specifically about what he meant by work out your salvation 
with fear and trembling. And that's a key word. Because he's not talking about some kind of morbid fear, some kind of shaking in the boots, kind of quaking, some kind of shrinking back and parallelic fear that uh, just disenables us, if you will, from doing the things he's calling us to do. There's a reason why Paul said with fear and trembling. As a matter of fact, if you want the definition of fear, all you need to do is turn to the book of Proverbs. Fourteen times it talks about the fear of the Lord in the book of Proverbs. And if you say fear of the Lord and you look through uh, uh, some Bible software, as I did with, uh, with Bible works, you'll come up with 25 times in the Old and New Testaments that this particular phrase is used. And specifically, if you talk about the comment of fear and trembling five times in the New Testament, Paul uses this phrase, or the author of Hebrews uses the phrase, to describe the attitude, the mindset that we ought to have when we come before the presence of the living God. So therefore, it does not imply morbid fear, but it it implies instead an awestruck feeling of reverence in the presence of God. I used this example in the first service, and I'd like to kind of give it to you again. We had a dinner last night with my sister-in-law, who just returned from a trip to, uh, to Europe. And then specifically, they had gone to the National Gallery in London, and they noticed that when they were there, what crowds there were, and the people were just, just literally humming all over the place. It was just a complete uh, den of noise, until they got to the one section of the gallery where there were 24 Rembrandt pictures or portraits, or landscapes that he had done. Twenty-four in one place. And she said it was a striking difference between that room and the rest of the gallery, in that people spoke in whispers, if they spoke at all. But people just sat and looked at the fantastic paintings that Rembrandt had done back several centuries ago. That was just in awe of the the talent of the man, and of the subjects that he painted, and how striking they were. Now, that's an awestruck kind of feeling. And if Rembrandt can elicit that kind of feeling, what should the living God be able to elicit in us? What should the creator of heaven and earth, the author of our salvation, be able to do for us when we consider essentially what he has done? It is him who's at work in us. Let's go to the next slide for a moment and talk about Paul's attitude when he was talking to the Corinthians. He said this in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not of persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. So why did Paul have this attitude of fear and trembling? Wasn't afraid of any man at the church of Corinth or any man upon the face of the earth. Not whatsoever. What he feared 
was that they might get the message wrong. That there might be a misrepresentation or a misunderstanding of the word of truth in Christ Jesus. And that's why he wanted to speak plainly of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because there were others trying to say there's more that's required here. Not only do you have to believe in Christ, but you have to adhere to the law. And Paul was trying to preach the simple truth of the gospel of Christ. And as a consequence, he had an attitude of awestruck reverence, knowing that God had charged him with a great responsibility to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I can appreciate to some degree that feeling. Uh, it, it, it inspires in me an awestruck feeling of awe to be able to stand and, and preach the gospel because I'm about as least worthy of any human being that could stand in front of this congregation to do it. But God in his grace and mercy enables me, we trust, to speak the word of truth and love. So this is a reverence that is so absolutely clear to us. As a matter of fact, it has much to do with the realization of who it is that is working in us and for what purpose he is working in us. Consider this, that the very Godhead, if you will, dwells in us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. He who has sealed us to the day of redemption, who has given us a down payment for his God's own possession, he is the one who is indwelling us. It ought to inspire some awe in us. Think of this also. He is the one who's creating within us the disposition to do the will of God, to will. He creates within us that feeling. You know, sometimes we struggle with this. And as Paul so aptly described in Romans chapter 7, it was the things I wished I could do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. And so sometimes we don't, we don't realize it's God who's at work in us, stirring up that feeling that we ought to be doing something, and yet we fail to do it. But it's God who's at work in us. And also, he's the one who gives energy to us. He enables us. He empowers us. He strengthens us through the presence of his Holy Spirit and dwelling so that we might heed the words and promptings of his Holy Spirit and obey. And also, it is he who directs the course of our action. He's the one, if we put our oars in the water and begin paddling to make the effort, he's the one who's going to show us in what direction to go. Because he has a plan for every single one of you. Every single one. Young and old. None excluded whatsoever. So, if you want a perfect example of cause and effect... This is it. It is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who is the cause. And the effect is that we might work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Think of that and think of what it really means. And what should be the reason for our fear and tremble? Not only do we consider he who has worked within us, but we should, should not to knowledge... That the creator of heaven and earth, the one who chose us before the foundation of the world was laid, and he who has provided for our salvation through the sacrifice of his only son, should not that produce in us a deep sense of awe, of fear and trembling, and gratitude 
that leads to obedience. Because remember the overarching theme we talked about two Sundays ago? This overarching theme that Paul had in the ch- to the church at Philippi when he was saying to them, be like Christ. Be like Christ. And he gave the example of how we ought to be like Christ. But let's talk for a moment about the application of this effort. We talked about the necessity of it, and that is what God has made clear that we should do. But let's talk about how this applies. How do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and what does it mean? Our attitude toward others. And by the way, if you look at um, the very beginning of chapter 2, Paul says this, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. So what did he mean by that? There is a great need, an absolute, as a matter of fact, it's an imperative for us if we heed the word of God, if we obey the leading of the Holy Spirit, that there ought to be unity in the body of Christ. There ought to be an attitude, a unity through the single-mindedness of fixing our eyes on Jesus. There ought to be a love that just is maintained and cultivated constantly, God's perfect and perfecting love that enables us to love the unlovely. There has to be indeed a united spirit, a oneness of heart, if you will, that then gives us the focus of keeping after that one goal that God has set before us, of fulfilling the, the, the one purpose, which is holding fast the word of truth. And then there is also the absence of selfishness and conceit. And this is an attitude that sometimes is difficult in our day and age. Because, after all, it seems like the clarion call of this world's philosophy is the simple words. It's all about me. It's all about me. Have you heard that before? That's an... When you think about it, and when you think about what that means in the Christian context, it's not all about us. It's all about God and his purpose and plan for us. And yet, that's sometimes the attitude that we find in people. It's contrary because it's an attitude of individualism. And we hold fast to this great freedom of individualism that we have in our country in day and age. And as a consequence, it sometimes wrecks, wrecks havoc in the church of God. He also said this in the next verse of Scripture in verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Remember we talked about those two verses of Scripture in 1 Peter 5.5 5 and James 4.6, where the essence says this, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There has to be humility. As a matter of fact, we'll talk about that in more, in more specific terms, but there has to be an humbleness of mind, an outlook that it's not all about me. It's not all about me. It's all about Jesus. So we ought to regard one another as those who are more important than ourselves. And so consider the interests of others, and above all else, their, our own interest, put their interests above our own. Look at that 
verse of Scripture in verse 4. Actually, the latter part of verse 3, it says, Regard one another as more important than yourselves, and do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, that's not an easy thing to do sometimes. Especially if one has a mindset, it's all about me. You're going to have a hard time putting other people's of interest. But why would Paul say this? Why would he charge us to do that? If you look at the back of your study guides, we've reproduced, as we've done several times in the past, but I don't think within the last two years, the God's one another commandments. And think about what that says. And I would challenge you this week in your private quiet time with God to sit down and look up these scriptures and meditate on them and see what it really means. What is God asking us to do through his apostles and prophets as he proclaims his truth in the New Testament? When he talks about the one another commandments. And as you look through those, you'll see it's it's an awesome thing. You talk about setting aside your own interests. He says it in about every different way that it could be possibly said in that, those passages of scriptures. There's about probably 30 of them there. But think about that. Meditate on that. Because that's why, what God is asking us to do. And he also is asking us to set aside all grumblings and disputes. And, and for that matter, think about that in verse 14 which is kind of like in the middle. He goes in to be like Christ, and then he goes back and kind of reiterates some things that he did in the very first part of chapter 2. But grumbling and complaining are two things that always leads to eventually disputes of some kind. And then that leads normally to rebellion. Think about some Old Testament examples. Here are the children of Israel being freed from 400 years of slavery, being, seeing that the, the mercy of God poured out at the Passover, the plagues that came upon the Egyptians when they resisted the will of God, the freedom that was done as they went through the, the, the desert being led by the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And yet, though they passed through the Red Sea on dry land, and Pharaoh's army was swallowed up, Though they saw these great miracles, what happened? They complained and they griped and eventually disputes broke out and rebellion. And to the point where God was ready to cast them aside and start all over again. Unless Moses had interceded and asked for mercy upon them. That that he would not do that. But think about that. Sometimes that's exactly the kind of, of things we can find that people in the church are griping and complaining. And all it does is cause disputes and then eventually rebellion. And it only displeases God and certainly only pleases the enemy of our souls, Satan himself. So we need to be mindful of that. We have an attitude. And that ultimate attitude we see in this next slide is called the ultimate mindset, be like Christ. Look for a moment, if you will, in Philippians chapter 2. Beginning, actually, uh, in verse 5, with this particular verse, because this says a lot, though it is a short, small, compact verse. It says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude in yourselves, 
which was also in Christ Jesus. Attitude has a lot to do with how well we're going to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. If we don't have an attitude of fear and trembling, we probably won't have much of an attitude of humility. And as a consequence, we're going to see here in those next verses of Scripture, it says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and having been made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the attitude that we ought to have. We ought to be like Christ in that same regards. We ought to have that attitude of one who gave up his glory, who surrendered the privileges of being at the right hand of God and became a man, assuming the form of man, and obedient even to death, the death on a cruel, criminal Roman cross. That's the kind of attitude. Is that a high standard or not? Therefore, I just ask the question, is it easy to submit to the will of God sometimes? Christ did. But he said, as he pleaded, that it might be spared him, that the cup would pass from him. He said, nevertheless, not what I will, but what your will would be. Your will be done. And we need to have that same kind of mindset in us. Not about us, Father. It's about you. It's about Jesus Christ, your Son. Your will be done. And so therefore we see that in verse 6, or pardon me, in, in verse 9, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed in him the name which is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and, at, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So our ultimate goal, the application of our effort, is to be like Jesus, who humbled himself, and then God highly exalted him. Let's talk again about another goal, another thing that we are to do, and that is to appear as lights, as lights to the world. You know, if you ever stop to think about it, sometimes our light doesn't shine very brightly. And there's a reason for that. Perhaps it's that we have been negligent about our worship with God. Perhaps we have been negligent about our fellowship with him in prayer and through the word. Perhaps it has been that we are indifferent. Perhaps it is that we are disobedient. And we've kind of said, no, Lord, it's about me. When you really get down to it, it's about me. And so when we do that, our light doesn't shine very brightly. But in, in, this, in this next slide, he says this, so that you should be, you know, children of God above reproach in the midst of a, of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights to the world. Think about these other verses of Scripture. In Matthew 5.14, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. And in John 8.12, Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 
In Ephesians 5, 8, Paul said, You formerly were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. At walk as children of light. Make the effort to walk as children of light. And lastly, in 1 John 2, 2.10, the, the, the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause of stumbling in him. So we ought to love one another. Even as you see those love one another are those commandments regarding one another on the back of that study guide this morning. That's the attitude that we ought to have. That's the humbleness, the humility that we take upon ourselves with God's divine assistance that enables us to have that mindset in us that fulfills those commandments that you see. And Jesus said, he who loves me keeps my commandments. So let's talk about the goal of our effort. I have this quote here by A.W. Tozer, and Tozer had this knack for being able to say such profound things in few and uh, few words, and, and this is an example. He says this, Let a Christian insist upon rising above the poor average of religious experience, and he will soon come up against the need to know God himself as the ultimate goal of all Christian doctrine. And that's what it's about. The whole poor experience. And remember this. Tozer probably wrote these words in the 40s or the 50s. No later than the very early 60s, because he died in 63. The fact is, is that there's poorer religious experience today than when he was writing about it. And yet, the only way we're going to have the kind of religious experience, if you will, the profound spiritual face-to-face experience with God himself, is if indeed we understand what the Word is saying to us and beginning to apply it in our lives. The truth of God is revealed here for us. And, of course, the whole thing that is so absolutely profound in our day and age is that there is, a, there is an apostate church arising. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is do a little investigation. It's called the Emergent Church, and really what it is, is a, a movement toward having a ecumenical, one-world kind of religion. And what do you think kind of, what, what does the Bible tell you that religion is going to be about? It's not about Jesus Christ. It'll say some of the things that will delude you into thinking it is, but it's not. And so we ought to have a, a knowledge of the living God, and as a consequence, well, there is means by which we can do this. And as you'll see in this next slide, as we reiterate again to you, as we did last week, that prayer is one of the most important aspects of knowing God intimately. You can't do it without Him. And I'll read you that quote that we had last week in the slide. And it said that you can choose the discomfort of the discipline of praying when you don't feel like it. Again, you can choose the discomfort of the discipline of praying when you don't feel like it, or the desolation and terminal fatigue of life without prayer. You can choose it. Sometimes we don't feel like praying, but that's when we need to probably pray the most. And if we don't pray, what frustration ensues normally? 
The same thing goes with the word of God. This is by the means by which God has given us to really, really, truly know him. It's through his word, his revealed word, which is divinely inspired. God breathed in every way. These are the things that we ought to be doing. It requires our effort to pray when we don't feel like it. It requires our effort to read the word of God, to let him speak to us when we don't feel like it. Remember what we said last the week before last, actually, that, uh, that getting to know someone takes the effort of usually some face-to-face time to talk with them, to listen to them, to understand where they're coming from. That's the way you get to know one another. That's the value of our small groups, is that you get to know one another and you have some intimate relationships with one another because that is the fulfillment of all those one another commandments that are in back of that study guide. So what we see here is a need for us to make that effort to get to know him in every sense of the word. And matter of fact, if you look at the next slide, no longer to be children. This is what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. He said, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of man, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ. You know, maturity as a Christian is not an option. It's a commandment. It's a commandment. It's simple as that. God has not, his plan for your life is not that you remain babes in Christ. And as we saw that one particular scripture back, I didn't call, uh, call attention to that. But the fact is uh, that uh, in Hebrews, he, he admonishes us that by now we ought to be teachers. Instead, we're only able to eat the milk of the world, to take in the milk of the word. And Paul admonished the church at Corinth the same way. Because they were babes in Christ because of their fleshly living, the carnal Christian, if you will. God intends for us to become mature men and women in Christ. He does not expect us to remain teenagers or adolescents, much less babes. He's asking us to grow up into all aspects unto him, the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. So God is calling us to Christian maturity, and we need to understand that. Also, it comes down to this, and that's obedience. How obedient are you unto Christ? Because if you look at it this way, Jesus said very simply in John fourteen fifteen, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In John fifteen ten, he said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And in 1 John 5, 3, the Apostle John told us, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandment, commandments are not burdensome. Those commandments on the back of that study guide are not burdensome. They are not difficult for you to do. They are not impossible. 
They are possible because God's at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's at work in you to produce those things so that people might look upon us and recognize us by our love one for another. He said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's the way we are lights unto the world. That's the way we reflect the light of God's truth if we keep his commandments. And in John 14, 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. If you want to know God, guess what? All you have to do is obey his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. They're not irksome. So what is the goal? What is the goal of our efforts? What are we striving to do? And Paul summed it up beautifully. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I forget what's behind me. I forget the past. I discount it because God has cleansed me of it. His grace has covered it. I press on. I reach. I strive. And that's what it literally means. I strive to attain the fullness of Christ. I strive. I press on toward the goal and the goal is to know him. As a matter of fact, if you look at that last, the, the, the last one here, it talks about the prize of the upward call. And he says this, I count all things but, but loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. I count all things but loss in view of that. In comparison to knowing God, all the riches of the world are utterly nothing. Whatsoever, And he said, lastly, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. He might know him in that way. I want to ask you some questions in closing this morning. How well do you know Jesus Christ, your Lord? How willing are you to be like him. How willing are you to truly make the effort to work out, to apply your salvation with fear and trembling? How willing are you to have an attitude, an awestruck attitude of fear and trembling in the presence of the creator of the universe, the almighty God, ruler of heaven and earth, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How willing are you to press on, to strive toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? How willing are you? God is asking us to do just this thing. That is his will for us. That is why it says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. It pleases him that the beauty of Christ be seen in us.
It pleases him that Christ be seen in us, that we would be like him and reflect his glory and image in every way. And it's something that he's called us to do because by his grace we have been saved through faith. That not of ourselves is the gift of God so that no one could boast. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has ordained beforehand that we should walk in them, that we might be light to the world and salt to the earth, if you will. That's what God is asking of us. We need to be reminded of this sometimes. And we need to be reminded of the attitude that we ought to have when we consider what Christ himself gave up on our behalf, that we might have the promise of everlasting life. Let's pray. Father God, you are indeed an awesome God. You are the God of the heavens and earth, creator of all that we see and even more that we have not seen nor will we see until we face you in glory. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy toward us that you have saved us and that you have called us to to work out our salvation with an attitude of fear and trembling, to be like Christ so that he might be seen in us. Lord, speak to our hearts. Open up our eyes. Help us not to hide behind the passivity of of grace sometimes, God, when we say it's not about it, we can't do anything, so therefore we won't do anything. But God, to do as you you commanded to us to do, you have made it clear, you have made it obvious. God, we thank you for your mercy worked out in us in Christ, for the faith that we have to believe in him, the Prince of Life, the Son of the Living God. So, Father, we ask these things that they might be made real in us and that Christ would be seen. In his name we pray. Amen.